The number one feedback I get from my father about my podcast is all the words <laughs> I pronounce wrong. <laughs> Welcome back to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark. I'm an ex-clerk of Justices Lillehaug and McCaig, and I work at Nichols Castor in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Allison Key, and I was a clerk for Justices Strauss and Hudson. Today we've got a defamation case about cops, care 11, and quotes. But before that, here's legal news. First article is from the Star Tribune. It's called New Minnesota Judicial Selection Commissioner Pledges to Continue Diversifying Courts. So uh, Lola Velazquez Aguilu, appointed by Governor Walls uh, as Minnesota's new chairwoman of the Minnesota Judicial Selection Commission recently, previously held one of the 49 seats on that commission. Uh, and the Minnesota Judicial Selection Commission recruits and screens applicants for vacancies in the state trial courts and the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals. So... Uh, there was a press conference, and uh, Walls, uh, his lieutenant governor, uh, Peggy Flanagan, and Velazquez Aguilu lauded the commission under former governor Mark Dayton for dramatically expanding the judiciary's racial and gender diversity over the past eight years. But the new commissioner, Lola Velazquez Aguilu, said the following, There's a deep pool of professional applicants from all backgrounds, from all walks of life, all sectors of the profession, all across this great state, who are today ready to become judges but they may not know it yet. So it is incumbent upon us to tell them. Governor Walls was asked whether he intended to adhere to the commission's recommendations, including vacancies on the State Court of Appeals and Supreme Court. And he said that while he is allowed to make the choice himself, he, quote, cannot imagine a situation, end quote, where he would depart from that commission's recommendation. So it sounds like uh, encouraging continuance on a, a positive path uh, where that's concerned. I agree. And we've talked before on this podcast about how the Supreme Court has increased its diversity greatly under the Dayton administration. So it's good to hear that that will continue under the Walls administration as well. Second article that we have for you is from Minnesota lawyers Kevin Featherly, or Kay Feather, as we call him here at TCLHQ. And he wrote a segment for Minnesota Lawyer on January 23rd called Blaha's Blues. So last episode, we mentioned that Michelle Fishbach was reimbursed by the Minnesota legislature for defending a lawsuit brought by one of her constituents, challenging the fact that she was sitting on two seats with one butt. We also mentioned last episode that the other major kind of legal political battle that occurred last session was Otto v. Wright County, which we covered on our first episode of The Common Law. So Kay Feather tells us that the saga of paying for these lawsuits continues. He writes that, quote, Mary Kiffmeyer has greeted the new state auditor, Julie Blaha, with a punitive bill that would send hundreds of thousands of dollars from Blaha's budget to the three Minnesota counties sued by her predecessor, Rebecca Otto. The bill also would block Blaha from seeking reimbursement for any legal costs incurred by the office when the former state auditor, Rebecca Otto, unsuccessfully sued the counties for hiring private auditors. So later in that article, Kevin Featherly reminds us that Otto sued Wright, Becker, and Ramsey counties after they hired private auditors, usurping the state auditor's customary role. Otto lost her case and all subsequent appeals. 
Laha was elected to replace her in November after Otto ran for governor but failed to get the DFL endorsement. Asked about it later, Kiff Meyer said she was not sure when the bill might get a hearing in her committee, but it probably wouldn't happen before February. So it's just interesting to hear that while Michelle Fishbach was able to be reimbursed for her legal costs, it sounds like that might not be the case for all government officials involved in litigation going forward. It's nice to see that uh, the pettiness can cross administrations and uh, times. And it sounds like even though Mary Kiffmeyer is a Republican, there are some Democratic sponsors of this bill to prevent Laha from being fully reimbursed for those costs. That concludes this edition of the Common Law's Blaha Law Blog. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, a quick bit about the Court of Appeals. There was an announcement that future recordings of Minnesota State Court of Appeals oral arguments will be posted online within 24 hours of that oral argument's completion. Judge Edward J. Cleary, who's the chief judge of the Minnesota Court of Appeals, said the following. While the court is based At the Minnesota Judicial Center in St. Paul, three judge panels regularly hold court throughout the year at various locations around Minnesota. The court is dedicated to serving all regions of the state. We're pleased to have the opportunity to make available the recordings of all of our oral arguments going forward in an effort to increase transparency and enlarge access to justice for all of the citizens of Minnesota. Uh, So the way this will work for uh, law nerds like us is that uh, once the oral argument is posted, you'll be able to listen to it or download an MP3 of it. And uh, once the opinion is issued by the Court of Appeals, which uh, statutorily must be within 90 days from the oral argument, uh, that opinion will be, will be linked at the location online of the oral argument as well. Super slick. Very slick. And the Minnesota Supreme Court has been releasing its video and audio for a couple of years now. So it's pretty cool that the Court of Appeals is following suit, especially because it seems to be more logistically challenging for the Court of Appeals, which does travel more than the Minnesota Supreme Court does. The Minnesota Supreme Court only has two courtrooms it walks back and forth from. So thank you and good job to the Court of Appeals. Yeah, certainly a lot more arguments that they're having to cover. So uh, impressive and cool. Moving to the next piece of legal news, this summer in our episode where we interviewed Justice McKegg, a great episode, by the way, please check it out. We also at that time covered a pretty significant case that came out of that week. It was called Cruz Guzman v. State, in which Justice Hudson wrote for the court that adequacy claims under the Minnesota Constitution's education clause were justiciable meaning that the courts in Minnesota can now weigh in on whether various aspects of a Minnesota child's education is quote-unquote adequate as required by Article 13, Section 1 of the Minnesota Constitution. At least as I read it, when the court says that the right of the people of Minnesota to an education is sui generis and that there's a fundamental right under the education clause to a general and uniform system of education, which provides an adequate education to all students. To me, when I read that language, that's a declarative, a clear declarative statement about adequacy. The Cruz-Guzman case drew national attention because it ruled that the state's courts can intervene as a matter of state constitutional law if racial discrimination renders Minnesota kids' education inadequate. The state engaged in conduct that was showed intentional discrimination, segregation. The state intentionally caused and contributed to the segregated schools is a very small step for this court 
to find that a segregated education is not an adequate education. A segregated education can violate the education clause. So that case went back to trial now that the Minnesota Supreme Court determined that those kinds of claims are justiciable. So a little bit of fallout from the decision in Cruz Guzman was that another case was also making its way up through the courts around that same time as the Cruz Guzman case. The case was called Forsland v. State, and it also deals with the adequacy clause of the Minnesota Constitution. Forsland and other parents of public school kids made the argument that teacher tenure and other specific teacher protection policies in Minnesota, such as, quote, last in, first out, violate Minnesota kids' right to an adequate education under the education clause. So Forslund et al. allege that, quote, being taught by effective teachers is essential to receiving an adequate education and that the challenged statutes pose time-consuming and expensive hurdles that make it all but impossible to dismiss ineffective teachers. So when the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled in Cruz Guzman that adequacy under the education clause was justiciable, the court also sent Forsland v. State back to the Court of Appeals for reconsideration. So we've been watching these two cases under the education clause move up and down the court system, first fighting about whether we can fight about them, and now fighting about them on a more substantive plane. So now that you're all caught up on that background, on January 22nd, an Associated Press Wire story entitled Court of Appeals Rejects Tenure Challenge Again notes that, quote, the Minnesota Court of Appeals on Monday rejected again a lawsuit alleging that teacher tenure and seniority rights in public schools saddle students of color with ineffective teachers and therefore violate those students' rights to an adequate education. A three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals stood by the earlier decision that the tenure lawsuit should be dismissed. The court concluded that even in light of the Supreme Court's ruling, the lawsuit still failed to establish that tenure and seniority-based layoff protections for teachers violate students' constitutional rights. In the Court of Appeals' words, they said, we now conclude that the claims are justiciable and that appellant parents have standing to raise them, but we also conclude that the amended complaint fails to state viable claims for relief under the Education and Equal Protection Clauses. The article also notes that similar lawsuits about tenure teacher quality and protections have failed in California and New Jersey, and a case is still pending in New York. So I'd have a very hard time believing that Forsland will not appeal this to the Minnesota Supreme Court, so we'll probably be seeing that again in the near future. It's interesting to see the state uh, state constitutional education clause being wielded by uh, different constituencies. So uh, a kind of liberal-leaning group pressing the lawsuit that we covered earlier about division of resources across uh, different districts and how that affects students of color. And then here, um, I don't know uh, exactly the political affiliation of um, the group that was behind this lawsuit, but traditionally um, stripping away teacher tenure has been uh, more on the right side of the spectrum as far as a a goal. But just fascinating to see different groups uh, find a lever in the state constitution and try and use it in new ways for their, their own ends. Right, which is why it was kind of interesting that both sides of the aisle, as Mark was saying, were kind of joining 
when we were initially fighting about justiciability and whether the courts could weigh in on this at all, they uh, filed briefs of support for each other in those cases. So it was interesting to see them working in partnership in the beginning and now, obviously, using the education clause for their own ends. Moving on to our feature case, it's called Larson v. Gannett. That's Gannett as in the chain of newspaper companies that you might have heard of. Uh, this case is about defamation. It's specifically about a privilege that's sometimes applied to defamatory statements called the fair reporting privilege. So uh, we've talked about defamation before, but uh, we'll just cover the basics. So a, a defamatory statement has four elements. One, uh, the statement was communicated to someone other than the plaintiff. Two, the statement was false. Three, the statement harmed the plaintiff's reputation. Four, the recipient of the statement reasonably understood the statement to refer to the plaintiff. So that's all pretty straightforward. It's a, a harmful, false statement. The fair reporting privilege is a privilege that media organizations get from defamation suits when the media is reporting or summarizing statements by officials of the government that would otherwise meet this, the requirements for defamation. So uh, Minnesota has recognized this privilege for over a century, starting in 1907. Um, but they actually have dealt with it in relatively few instances, which leads to the kind of open field that we'll encounter. In this case, where the justices uh, have the obligation to ask a lot of free-ranging public policy questions because uh, they're relatively kind of not hemmed in. Um, the most recent case in which they dealt with this is called uh, Moreno versus Crookston Times Printing Company. Um, and there, uh, they summarize it as a privilege that applies to, quote, an accurate and complete report or a fair abridgment of events that are part of the regular business of a city council meeting. So that was an application um, in a case that dealt with statements made at a city council meeting. So before Moreno, the only instance that the Minnesota Supreme Court had recognized the fair report privilege applied was in judicial proceedings, reports of judicial proceedings. So Moreno then expands the application of the fair report privilege to also include these city council meetings and also additional legislative proceedings. So, so far we know of at least three instances in when the fair report privilege applies. Importantly, in this Moreno case in 2000, the Minnesota Supreme Court outlined that it had specifically relied on two basic principles about the fair report privilege. First, it was willing to expand the application of the fair report privilege to include this situation because the meeting was public and a fair and accurate report would simply relay information to the reader that she would have seen or heard herself were she present at the meeting. And two, the court was willing to extend the fair report privilege here because of the obvious public interest in having public affairs made known to all. So you'll see the litigants in this case use those two basic principles from Moreno to argue for or against application of the fair report privilege in our case. Finally, about Moreno as a limiting principle, Moreno, the case, noted that the fair report privilege only protects media reports if they are, in fact, fair which Moreno outlined as not containing, quote, additional contextual materials not part of the proceeding that either conveyed a defamatory impression or commented on the veracity or integrity of any party, end quote. So after Moreno in 2000 then, 
we know that whether the FAIR report privilege protects any particular media report is a question first of whether the privilege even applies to a given proceeding, and two, whether the media statement was a fair and accurate report of the official proceeding. The framing of the analysis that we have to do is it's a two-part inquiry. So we ask first, does the privilege apply? And that question is a function of, is this, uh, you know, a public uh, uh, meeting where matters of public concern are, are being discussed? But, but the first question we ask is, does the privilege apply? And then if, if the answer to that is yes, then the next inquiry is, has that privilege been abused or been lost? And within that is the analysis of substantial accuracy, the gist of the, the matter, um, and also this idea from Marino of uh, whether or not any additional contextual material has been added. Last thing before we get to the facts here um, is that the journalistic community is pretty riled up about this. So uh, Mark Anfinson, uh, who's from the Minnesota Newspaper Association, uh, wrote that the fair report privilege provides a key buffer against libel claims, allowing news organizations to freely report on things like criminal charges and proceedings without undue fear of defamation liability. Uh, likewise, uh, relentless journalistic advocate, sometimes litigant before the state Supreme Court, Tony Webster, tweeted that uh, the defendant news organization, joined by many Amici media organizations, note that the case law on the fair report privilege is underdeveloped in Minnesota and that and argue that a decision against them could chill speech and lead to dangerous implications for journalism. Finally, Peter Callahan of MinPost wrote that it would be an ugly precedent if the appeals court is overturned. Um, so let's get to the facts. So police officer Tom Decker was shot and killed in an alley behind a bar in Cold Spring, Minnesota, which is just outside of St. Cloud, on November 29th, 2012. Ryan Larson was living in an apartment above the bar while going to a nearby technical college. Earlier that day, Ryan Larson's family had asked the police department of Cold Spring to do a welfare check on Ryan Larson. At about 9 o'clock last evening, the Stearns County Sheriff's Office uh, received calls of concern from the family of Ryan Larson that he was potentially suicidal. A short time later, Cold Spring officers responded to uh, Mr. Larson's residence and uh, failed to make contact with him at that time. Although the officers did return approximately an hour and 45 minutes later, still attempting to make contact uh, with the individual, and when the officers pulled up, Officer Decker left his squad car, and a very short time later was confronted by an armed individual, shot twice, and died. So around midnight of that same day, Ryan Larson was woken by police in his apartment who apparently saw that he had a handgun next to him. Um, shortly after Officer Decker was killed, uh, the area was uh, surrounded by police that responded to the area. Uh, a search team from the Stearns County Sheriff's Office uh, was eventually able to take into custody the subject of the welfare check. Uh, after that occurred, he was interviewed by Stearns County deputies, and some of that investigation is still ongoing. Brian Larson was arrested in connection with the shooting of Officer Decker and was taken to the Stearns County Jail. Larson denied killing Officer Decker. The next day, November 30th, 
law enforcement officials held a press conference and the Department of Public Safety issued a press release. Both the press conference and press release revealed that Ryan Larson had been arrested in connection with the murder of Officer Decker. First, on behalf of the Minnesota Department of Public Safety and the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, we'd like to offer our heartfelt condolences to um, the Cold Spring Police Department and the Cold Spring community um, for the loss of Officer Decker, who served this community and uh, who is a resident of the community. I'll briefly update you just on the current status of the investigation. As we've noted, this is an active and uh, ongoing investigation. We'll continue to follow up to determine exactly what happened in this incident. And as we noted, um, Ryan uh, Larson was taken into custody and was booked into the Stearns County Jail in connection with this incident. Uh, members of the BCA crime scene team have processed the crime scene that's still in process right now, gathering evidence related to uh, this investigation. We have agents and deputies from the Stearns County Sheriff's Office, along with other uh, police personnel in the area, conducting follow-up investigation and interviews um, around the entire state of Minnesota at this time. At the press conference, law enforcement officials also took and answered a few questions from reporters. This time we can open up to a, a few questions related to this incident. What reason to believe there might be some other individual involved? Uh, again, we don't have any information to believe that at this time, but it's in early stages of the investigation. We continue to follow up on all leads. Did you recover a weapon from the suspect that you believe was used in this? Uh, again, that's part of the active investigation, and we just can't comment on that at this time. Where was Larson when you shot at? Was he in the department? Was he down in the alley? Again, that's part of the active crime scene. We just we can't discuss the details of the active crime scene at this time. Uh, you mentioned that he's possibly suicidal. That was the family's concern. Any idea what was going on in his life last night to be notably upset? Again, it's far too early in the investigation to make a, a comment in reference to that. You may have mentioned this, and I apologize. Did, did he, was he alone, or did he have a partner with him when he arrived on scene there? I could, he uh, he did he did, was with a partner when he was shot and you know what I can say about this is from our preliminary investigation it's it's uh, <coughs> apparent to us that the officer was ambushed uh, at the scene. Can you talk a little bit about was there a lockdown at the bar and the restaurants? Really, I mean uh, we're getting into an area now that we uh, just it wouldn't be prudent for us to comment any further on this. Uh, we've answered the question that we can at this particular time. When we get to a point in the investigation that we can give you. Uh, good updates, we certainly will. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate it. Kara Levin and the St. Cloud Times subsequently ran media reports about both the press conference and the press release that contained statements relaying what law enforcement officials said or believed about Larson's connection to Officer Decker's death, they also ran statements referencing allegations against Larson and statements conveying other information about Larson. Ryan Larson was held by the authorities at the Stearns County Jail for several days, but he was later released from the jail without any charges ever being brought, and law enforcement officials cleared him from any involvement in the killing several months later. So in 2015, Ryan Larson brought a defamation action against Kara Levin and the St. Cloud Times, specifically for 11 different statements that these two outlets had published after the press conference and the press release, implying that he did, in fact, kill Officer Decker. So Karen Levin and the St. Cloud Times argued that this fair report privilege protects them from this defamation action brought by Ryan Larson, and the case should therefore be dismissed. 
The news organizations filed a motion for summary judgment, which the district court denied, specifically ruling that press conferences and press releases didn't qualify for the fair report privilege. If you remember, the 2000 case Bereno extended the privilege only to city council meetings and legislative proceedings on top of the earlier 1907 case, which said the privilege covers judicial proceedings. But the Court of Appeals reversed. The Court of Appeals, in its ruling, said that the fair report privilege does extend to statements made at an official press conference or in an official press release. So at the Supreme Court, the main issues we have left to resolve about this case are whether the fair report privilege applies to summaries of statements made by law enforcement officials in a press conference and press release, and also whether CARE 11 and the St. Cloud Times statements were accurate enough reports of that press conference and press release to qualify for protection from defamation under the fair report privilege. Moving on to oral argument, uh, the appellant's attorney, uh, Larson's attorney, is Stephen Fiebiger of the Stephen Fiebiger Law Office. Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. I'm Stephen Fiebiger on behalf of Ryan Larson. And there are basically two prongs of this case, and he covers both of them. So the, the two prongs broadly are, one, whether the privilege applies to summaries of statements from a government press conference or news release. And if so, whether the statements made by the media organizations in this case were within the bounds of fair, accurate statements about uh, what was communicated in the press conference. So the, f the first prong, again, is whether this uh, privilege, uh, this exception to uh, defamation claims applies to statements by media concerning government press conferences or news releases. So you'll recall the Moreno case uh, applied to an official meeting of a city hall, like a legislative proceeding in that sense. So this is different in that uh, it's not a formal legislative gathering, but it is a government uh, press conference. It's not uh, you know off the cuff either. Council, what is your position about whether uh, the media would have a privilege here, the, a fair and accurate privilege. Um, could it ever apply to a press conference called by police? What is your what is your position about that? Larson's attorney tries to basically cabin this exception to what was established in uh, the Moreno case concerning the city council meeting. So he argues that the privilege attaches when there is judicial control. We we don't think that there is a privilege here for a press conference or, as the Court of Appeals held, a summary of statements made in the press conference. Um, and, and the privilege would attach uh, to the point of the fact of arrest and the arrest charge, but it doesn't apply before the case uh, is under judicial control. And I think the cases are clear about that. So is it your position then that that because arrest and charge are fairly encompassed within a judicial proceeding, that the fair and accurate reporting privilege covers arrest and charge, but nothing else? Yes. And in his brief, he cites the public policy um, supporting that argument, saying no compelling public benefit exists 
for extending the privilege before the time required for prosecutors to file criminal charges. Requiring the media to wait until criminal charges are filed and judicial control over the case is exercised before reporting details of the crime is reasonable and provides protection to individuals while promoting accurate reporting. The rush to publish breaking news is no more important than procedural protections for charging individuals under arrest and their right to confront the charges. The media should not publish speculative summaries about what happened when law enforcement and prosecutors decline to provide it or do not have it before judicial control. So two things. One, um, this case is just delightful. On this podcast, The Common Law, we actually cover mostly like statutory cases, it seems like. Um, here we're in like just the prime of common law. Uh, and, and an exception to common law, born of public policy and trying to work out the boundaries of that exception. And it like can't be overstated how few rules really are governing what uh, the court is doing here. Like they're, the parties do a good job of citing to the restatement and citing to the case law, et cetera. But really, we're just like wide out in the open and uh, trying to figure out what's a sensible rule about the press, which is itself just a function of democracy. It is just delightful what we're doing here. And second, uh, Justice Chudich, uh, in that spirit, responds to the idea about judicial control by noting that, in fact, uh, that proposed boundary doesn't really line up with the court's precedent from Moreno. Counsel, but um, I'm a little puzzled because in Moreno, we recognize the fair report privilege, and it had nothing to do with an arrest or charge there. So, I mean, our court has already expanded it beyond cases where arrests or charges have taken place. So with Justice Chudich's comment and observation that judicial control might not be the proper outer limit... We still then have a problem defining the boundaries of when the fair report privilege applies, which will become a theme throughout the entire oral argument. So kind of in that vein, the chief ends up dropping what ends up being this kind of fully formed rule of law as she sees it and what the boundaries of the fair report privilege should be. Counsel, what if the rule of law is that the privilege applies if the media is covering information that is public under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act or it's an open meeting under the open meeting law. So it's kind of funny here to to kind of hear the chief go all in with that very defined um, rule of law because she acknowledges it hasn't been briefed or argued in that way in relation to Um, the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, or the open meeting law, um, which is why it's clear she spent a lot of time coming up with this. And she continues to pretty forcefully argue for this specific rule of law, despite not really getting any buy-in from the Larson attorney here, and as we will see later, the Gannett attorney as well. I think if it's an official proceeding or official meeting, it, it would be privileged. And I guess what I'm suggesting is to give legs to that term, official proceeding, we would look to what the legislature has already determined is public. So there's a whole host of government data that's public under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, and there are a bunch of meetings that by state statute have to be open to the public. 
So I'm just, I understand that this is, this is probably beyond how this case was, was briefed, but we have to write a rule of law. And I'm just wondering if what your reaction is to that rule of law so that this fair reporting privilege would cover, um, the, would apply if the media is reporting on public information under the Data Practices Act or under the Open Media Law. So after Larson's attorney had his judicial control rule of law for when the fair report privilege should apply, kind of dismantled by Justice Chudich citing Moreno, and after not really agreeing with the chief that her particular boundaries of the rule of law might be the best, Larson's attorney then settles on a principle that he claims is from Moreno, that it satisfies the official proceeding requirement for the fair report privilege to apply if there is an opportunity for both sides to be heard, which was the case in the city council meeting in Moreno and is the case when there is judicial control in a court proceeding, but was not the case in this particular news conference or press release, which is why Larson's attorney argues the fair report privilege should not protect the media in this case. We pointed out some um, uh, pieces that show up in Moreno that I think are helpful. And Moreno supports this too, that for an official proceeding to be covered by the privilege, there needs to be uh, an opportunity for both sides to be heard. And, and that uh, isn't present at a, a news conference. You know, Mr. Larson couldn't have come into the news conference. He wasn't invited and, and given his side of the story. So the other side of the argument about whether the fair reporting privilege applies to a press release or a news conference is addressed by Gannett's attorney, uh, who is Stephen Wells of Dorsey and Whitney. This case goes to the very heart of the press's role in our society. It's reporting of actions, proceedings of top officials in the executive branch of government. Here, the top law enforcement officials of the state, of a county, and of a city who convened an official press conference expressly for the purpose of disseminating information to the public. Gannett relies on the Moreno case as well, arguing that that case established the principle that the privilege applies to public proceedings and uh, issues that are of obvious public interest. So uh, Gannett says that those same principles require that a press conference and press release uh, at issue here be covered by the privilege. I mean, you, you would agree that recognizing the privilege here would, is an expansion of Moreno. I, I would agree, Your Honor, that Moreno and Nixon, the other two cases that this court has decided on the issue, do not deal with this specific issue. Okay. The way the Court of Appeals phrased this is they said, we can discern no meaningful distinction between citizen statements about criminal activity, that's what happened in Moreno, that are made at a city council meeting, and police statements about a recent crime at an official press conference. Uh, so that's the argument that Gannett is making, that uh, both of these instances involve uh, official information being conveyed that is of public concern. So in arguing that the fair report privilege should apply to this press conference and press release in this case, using the same principles from Moreno, Gannett still runs into the same bookends problem that Larson's attorney did. What are the exact parameters of this rule for when this particular privilege applies? Help me with the parameters uh, of the rule as you see it. Again, is it is it just meetings that are subject to the open meeting law? I, I'm still tr struggling with what the parameters of the rule might be. So, I mean, what are the bookends? Any 
high-level government official calls a press conference. Does the privilege apply? The question that the court should ask, Your Honor, is, is this official authorized? Are they someone who um, speaks to the public, is authorized to speak to the, to the public? Um, have they called the meeting as expressly to disseminate information to the public? So I think that gets to the crux of an interesting thing that was happening in the debate about prong one in this case. Um, I think Gannett's attorney is proposing a kind of venue-specific, uh, public-facing-specific rule, which is that if someone is speaking on behalf of a government entity, then the things that person says, regardless of their content, are covered by the fair report privilege, so long as they meet the second prong, which we'll talk about later. So in this court, in Marino and also in the restatement, talk specifically about the fact that where you have uh, an informal statement by a low-level officer, typically those are statements that are made on behalf of the agency is made on behalf of the public affairs officer. So if that's the situation that Your Honor is talking about, a statement, a release of a statement to the media by a public affairs officer, then yes, that should be covered by the fair report privilege. He received a fair bit of pushback from Justice Thiessen, from the chief, um, I think from other justices about uh, hypotheticals they concocted concerning the content of that speech. The chief, for example, said... What about, say, the athletic director at University X calls a press conference and at the press conference reveals data about students that is private under state and federal law. Um, the media covers it because, after all, it's a press conference by a high-level government official talking about a matter of public concern. Does the privilege apply? So those are all... Uh, situations in which the justices are highlighting the content of what's said. Gannett's response is, we should not task journalists with uh, having to discretionarily decide which content uh, voiced by public officials in public-facing communications is uh, appropriate or permissible. That the very fact that there is a public-facing presentation by a government official means that any information communicated in that presentation is of public interest. Your Honor, that goes to my point about content, though. This court, has, this court has never said that if a proceeding, an action, a meeting is covered by the privilege, that there are bits and pieces of, of the statement or action that are covered by the privilege, but not everything. If the athletic director is revealing uh, personal information, private information that they shouldn't be, it's newsworthy for the fact that the athletic director is making uh, that bad decision. And when public officials speak, Your Honor, the way that they're held accountable, the way that the, that the public finds out about officials and whether they've gone too far is if the press reports it. I mean, isn't that something that you want the public to know so that they can hold government officials accountable? That's the role of the press. Um, I think two responses to that, that I think some of the justices tried to highlight in oral argument is first, you do get into line drawing problems then in terms of who is allowed to speak on behalf of an agency, who are the people who are allowed to reveal private information in a public setting? It, it sounds like it matters, or we have to consider whether or not, what authority the person who's speaking, or persons who are speaking, have to speak, what well, they've Honor, been delegated. How does the press make the determination that this particular public official is speaking of things that he's authorized to speak about? Because it seems like the rule you're drawing is that if they're not authorized, then the privilege wouldn't apply. So you have a line drawing problem as a, uh, in terms of what is a person speaking on behalf of an agency and what is a public-facing person. And the second response I think some of the justices raised was that 
In terms of the argument that even if a high-ranking official or not a high-ranking official publishes or speaks on um, an otherwise defamatory matter, and then that fact would be newsworthy, and therefore the privilege should apply, is that like Justice Thiessen referenced at various points in oral argument, there are ways to report on the fact that public officials are saying things about people or events without publishing the details of it. And at some point, the media does have a responsibility to not publish the defamatory details while it can still publish the fact that defamation did occur. I think it's I think it would be important for the public to know that the police have gone too far. I mean, isn't that something that you want the public to know so that they can hold government officials accountable? That's the role of the press. But you didn't have to name the person to achieve that purpose. To help the public in this case, you could have just said there's someone that has been arrested here. That would have given enough information to the public to give them more comfort, right? Yeah, I think that sets up the kind of public policy debate pretty well um, and shows you how unbounded by um, any of the kind of formal legal authorities we are here. It's, it's kind of a democracy and uh, morality debate at this point. One final point before we go to the second prong um, of this test is that Tuganet's attorney, the chief, again, tries to forcefully argue for her proposed rule of law instead of the rule of law that we just discussed, Gannett's attorney was arguing for, and the chief says... Why is that a bad rule? I mean, I'm looking for bookends here. It cannot be that any press conference called by any high-level... I mean, that just cannot be the law, it seems to me. We need some bookends. So I'm wondering if the Data Practices Act doesn't provide a good bookend. She ends up arguing uh, so forcefully for this that she, at one point, already assumes it's the law and asks counsel if we need to know if it was covered under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act in order to resolve the case. Was all the information public under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act at the time of the press conference? I I don't have an answer for that, Your Honor. Well, don't we need to know that? No, you do not, Your Honor. Why wouldn't that be a good bookend? So Gannett's attorney just ends up responding to um, the chief's uh, lobbying for this particular rule that he doesn't support it because it doesn't, at, at this point, have any support in the case law, which might be the best answer that you can come up with when the chief is coming at you with rules based on law you didn't brief that kind of came out of um, nowhere. Uh, well, Your Honor, I, I don't, there's nothing in the, in the prior formulations of this court that would suggest that, um, that the Data Practices Act is the, is the bookend. There's nothing in, in the Moreno formulation or Nixon that would suggest that reporters have to run to the lawyers to figure out whether information that's being live brought... Well, in my experience, reporters in Minnesota know are pretty familiar with the Data Practices Act. Your Honor, still, back to my point, there's nothing in, in this formula, court's formulation in Marino or in, uh, or in Nixon that would suggest that result. So now we move on to the second prong of our analysis, which is assuming that the... Uh, form of the communication is covered by the reporting privilege, the communications covered by the media still have to be basically fair. Um, In Moreno, they called that uh, 
not containing additional contextual materials which weren't part of the proceeding that either conveyed a defamatory impression or commented on the veracity or integrity of any party. But in general, I think FAIR gets across um, both what's trying to be accomplished and how hazy the guidelines we're working with here are. And so Larson's attorney obviously argues that the subsequent media reports of this press conference and news release were not fair representations of what was said there. We think within that framework, even if the privilege attached, um, the the privilege was abused by what happened here in the in the uh, broadcasts and the articles. And that goes really to the issue of whether the statements were substantially accurate or if it went afoul of the standard set in Moreno that the publications uh, added additional contextual material not part of the original proceeding, this press conference that conveyed a defamatory impression and commented on the integrity and veracity of Mr. Larson as the killer. The publications in the, the newscasts at 6 and 10 on CARE 11 and also in uh, the articles in the St. Cloud Times went way beyond anything that was said at the news conference. This is a pretty fact-specific question. Um, and I think the Court of Appeals described it well. So they said, at the press conference, law enforcement did not say that Larson ambushed Decker, but they did say that Decker was shot and ambushed and that they had arrested Larson in connection with the shooting. Further, the news release in the jail log indicated that Larson was being held and a murder charge was anticipated. So the question is, when you consider all those statements together, are they close to what the news outlets reported, which was... Uh, Larson is accused of doing these things. So in particular, Larson's attorney cites media reports that strongly implied that Larson had been charged with murder, that Larson was the one who did commit the murder, that Larson was the one who um, perpetrated the ambush of Officer Decker. How does the statement that police say, statement, uh, police say that the man identified as um, Ryan Larson ambushed Officer Decker and shot him twice. There's no evidence anywhere in that press conference that those two facts, shot him twice and ambushed him, occurred. Under any reasonable view of the, the evidence, the underlying implication that Mr. Larson killed Officer Decker was false. Um, but the one of the main aspects of the questions of whether the media reports were substantially fair or accurate was around the idea that the law enforcement officials in the press conference and press release worked very hard to specifically highlight the preliminary nature of the investigation at that time. And that specific detail was not relayed in the subsequent media reports. Here, the law enforcement said multiple times that it's still under investigation. In the press conference, uh, the officers noted multiple times the preliminary nature of the investigation. And that doesn't appear anywhere in these media accounts, I don't think. So it's worth noting here that the court treated this with a little less uh, detail than they did the first prong of the test, because this seems likely to be a jury question. It's a, it's a factual question about whether the statements that were reported by the news media are fair representations of what was said by the government official at the press conference. So just to cover the other side of this, Gannett's attorney uh, argues that that the fair reporting privilege doesn't require a verbatim recitation of the statements made by law enforcement, but instead just that it gets the gist of the content. 
So now we're talking about the substantial, the substantial truth prong, Your Honor. The statements in the press conference were that Ryan Larson had been, had been booked for murder, um, the murder of Officer uh, Decker. The police indicated that the murder was an ambush murder and that two shots had been fired uh, into, into Officer Decker. And there was also uh, twice uh, statements by law enforcement that they were that they had no reason to believe that anybody else was involved. So, uh, Your Honor, to say that those or to suggest that that a fair abridgment of that is not that police say Larson shot Decker is it doesn't follow. So Gannett's attorney makes the argument that this just standard should apply instead of a kind of verbatim recitation standard for protection under the fair report privilege because Gannett's attorney says if you required verbatim recitation of any public official proceeding, then that would essentially negate one of the essential functions of the media, which is to edit and translate official proceedings for the general public. So the verbatim recitation, according to Gannett's attorney, cannot be the standard. A couple of things I I think are also worth noting. One, the media is not um, satisfied with the way they handled this. So um, I think there's a realization that even though the media argues this is not illegal, that uh, mistakes were made. And so there's a post by NPR on their kind of news analysis blog uh, in 2013 acknowledging that uh, this probably wasn't the right way to handle it and noting that um, the apologies given to Larson have been pretty limited. Larson told WCCO in 2013, my life is gone, basically stolen from me. I am always going to be looked at as a person that committed this crime. So, you know, serious damage occurred here. And I think the news organizations wish they would have reacted differently in retrospect. The other interesting thing that came up in oral argument is that it's not the policy of all or probably most news organizations to report the actual name of a suspect of a crime before that crime is charged out. And my understanding is that Kara Levin's policy was that they don't release the name of the suspect until that individual has been charged. And it appears to me that they didn't follow their own policy here. Because I was watching the Golden Globes last night and then NBC came on, the news came on after the Golden Globes was ended and there was the first story was a story of a report of, I think it was a car accident and a hit and run. And it said that the woman came forward to the police and said, basically that I'm the person that, was, that did the hit and run, but we're not gonna report her name because we don't report the name of a suspect until there's an actual charge placed. So as fierce as the news media is in defending this case, um, most new news organizations, if they didn't outright admit wrong as that one NPR blogger did in his article, Time for an Apology for Ryan Larson, like Mark said, they at least have a general policy that they don't release names of the suspects until they are charged because of this exact situation, um, which can so easily happen because it did here. So that's at least an implicit recognition that they're wading into dangerous territory when they voluntarily release names of suspects before charging when the information is so preliminary. So it might be hard to buy all of the kind of pearl clutching from the media about this specific case where if there was an overstep, you could argue that this was it. Isn't that why there are media organizations who have a policy that they don't, they don't 
release the names of suspects? And, and that's the problem with releasing the, the information that was disseminated here before charges are filed and the case under judicial control because he didn't do it. He wasn't the one that committed the murder. So Gannett, um, essentially, which is CARE 11, is the main named respondent slash defendant in this case. But a ton of other local media organizations weighed in as Amici on the Gannett CARE 11 side. So the amicus brief filed by all of these media organizations includes names like the Star Tribune, Fox 9, the Associated Press, the Pioneer Press, and uh, the brief also notes that the New York Times and the Washington Post, quote, informally join Amici in the filing of this brief, whatever that means. Probably that they didn't make the filing deadline to participate as actual Amici on the brief, but thinking that that sentence would add some weight. Um, and as we mentioned, Larson also sued WCCO and KSTP, but both of those lawsuits settled. So this brief filed by the Amici talks a lot about the importance of media and the role that the media plays in helping the public understand what is going on um, in the government. And that waxing on about the press's greatest hits, including Watergate and other journalistic achievements didn't go over super well for all of the members of the court. And I got to say, and I'm sorry, but in this brief, and it's not your brief, but the Amici brief, where they talk about this case, and then they talk about all this great stuff about Watergate, which is exactly the opposite of this case. You're not holding the, the, the in this case, the job that you were doing was not holding the government accountable. No argument about that, Your Honor. Um, so the Amicus brief also highlights some interesting policy arguments. They say the media is not a government mouthpiece, although it sometimes willingly serves as a passive conduit of government information, as defendants did here, it is not required to regurgitate whatever carefully drafted and potentially self-serving statement the government produces. And when the government says we can't discuss that at this time, it is the media's job to ask why and to press for more, and if the government does not provide satisfactory answers, to ask someone else. In 2018, when citizens want government officials' unchallenged view of a situation, there are multiple ways to get it, including through channels that allow government officials to speak directly at the public, such as Twitter. But when citizens want news, analysis and perspective and interpretation, they watch and read and listen to Amici and the defendants. So I thought that was a pretty good, um, weighty statement on behalf of the media. And I think that the kind of weight of sympathy afforded to a potentially defamed random person on the street versus the news media complex definitely goes back and forth and oscillates a little bit throughout time. But in this political environment, that passage from the amicus brief probably speaks a lot louder than it may have in a different political climate. So yeah, I don't know. I was skeptical about this amicus brief probably for the same reason that Justice Thiessen was that like there there probably is a case where those statements uh, hold sway. But here, where the the problem that Care Eleven, et cetera, is incurring in this case is that they didn't do an accurate enough job of reciting what the cops said. So to argue that. Uh, like the crucial function of media is is actually like a translation of the statements made by government 
uh, speakers is just inapposite here because the thing they're in trouble for is failing. They they like overanalyzed and like kind of got it wrong um, rather than just saying what the cops said. And I agree with that. And I think that's a valid question for Gannett and Care 11. But I think the Amici as media organizations just want to impress upon the court that this is what is at stake, even if that is not the particular facts of this case, which tends to be more of the role of Amici in a case, is to remind the court that there are factual contexts outside of the one in front of them that they also need to bear in mind. In response to the uh, Amici here, I think Larson does a good job trying to address some of those more weighty themes by saying, that the beneficiary of the fair report privilege isn't the media. That's that's not who we should be primarily concerned with. Um, the beneficiary of the fair report privilege is the public, generally, um, which I think the media is trying to say the media is a proxy for the public, but Larson is trying to rein that kind of all those principles in by saying, no, we need to be careful about the public and um, not just let the media have free reign. So, Mark... Who is going to win this case and why? <laughs> Yikes. Um, well, it's a difficult question to answer, right? Because uh, there are two prongs to the test. And I think we're suspicious that the second prong, whether the statements uh, were a fair representation of what the government said, is a fact question and that the court might uh, dodge on it. So it might not be a clear win for either side. That said, I guess I'll, I'll kind of cop out of an answer, but note that the general tenor of the justices at this argument was uh, more skeptical of the media than I would have assumed. Um, I think Justice Thiessen, Justice Anderson, the Chief Justice, all at different points displayed something bordering on outrage at this specific incident and how it was handled. But when when taken out of context... Um, and and you're the person who is, it's your picture that's being flashed on the news that says that you have been arrested for murder, um, and it turns out that that is not true. It, you can't get, you can't put that horse back in the barn. And I would think that we, why clearly we have to have a balance because we want public to have information, um, and that's what the media is for. But I also have to think about the consequences to the individual who had their picture flashed because you can't ever get that back. And I can imagine being, uh, you know, an amicus in this case thinking like, God, this is, these are just not the facts that I would have wanted this to come up on. So I don't quite know uh, how it'll come out, but I wouldn't be optimistic if I was the media. It'll be interesting to hear if the chief ends up getting any buy-in, much less a majority buy-in for her proposed rule on the first prong that the fair report privilege applies and attaches if the information covered in the press conference or press release or other official proceeding is covered by either the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act or the open meeting laws. Um, it didn't seem like that many other justices were weighing in, and it didn't really seem to have any buy-in from the parties. So I have a hard time concluding that that's going to be where we go, but who knows what's going to happen in conference after oral argument if she can do some extra convincing there. Um, I agree that I think people were skeptical, more skeptical of the media than I was anticipating, for sure on the second prong, whether the media in this case acted appropriately and accurately relayed the information from that press conference. Um, 
But as far as the first prong, I think that's essentially an open question. As long as they can find some boundaries on it. I would be surprised on the first prong if the category of government speech that we're talking about here were not covered. I, th- I thought uh, the justices were struggling with what the outer bound of the rule was. But um, to me, at least, I, I think this is encompassed by what they did in Moreno. I think it's encompassed by the principles outlined in Moreno, but it would be it's clearly an extension of Moreno. And it, w- it would be hard to justify an extension without limiting, without explaining why you're extending it that far and not defining the outer boundary of it. So I, I'd be more inclined to say if they can't find an outer boundary of this, they might not apply the fair port privilege. What do we learn from the case today, Allison? Uh, today we learned from the case to never trust the cops and never trust the media. That wraps up our episode of The Common Law. Uh, You're not even going to laugh. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought we'd play our jokes straight on this show. No, we don't. <laughs> That wraps up this episode of The Common Law. Check us out at The Common Law on Twitter, thecommnlaw.com. And you can get a CLE credit uh, by looking up this uh, episode if you have listened to it in full. Also check out Minnesota's only free CLE calendar on the website. Thanks as always to our communications directors, Chloe and Joy, and the sponsor of this show, Michael Schultz. Uh, We'll see you next time. Have a nice one, commenters. Was that aggressive? Yes. I had too much popcorn and <laughs> chocolate.